You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? In this edition, a visit with William Parker, composer, improviser, poet, activist, organizer, author, educator, band leader, and one of the world's most celebrated jazz and new music bass players. Parker tells the tale, all illustrated with excerpts from Roulette's archival recordings dating to 1990. And now, William Parker. Since, let's say since 1972, when I was, no, actually 1970, when I was 18 years old, involved in uh, the music community of New York. I was uh, you know, living in the Bronx, New York, and came down here. And uh, every day 
I would meet different musicians. And uh, my root music that I was interested in was what you would call free jazz or avant-garde avant jazz or black music. And uh, so I, I ran into you know, Rashid Ali as Sonny Murray later on when he returned from Paris, Alan Silva, Dave Burrell, Wilbur Weir, a whole bunch of musicians. And uh, it was sort of a university to me because I would come down and then play all day. Um, I would start at a place called the Firehouse on 11th Street and Avenue C and play with, that's uh, so where I met Billy Higgins and Andrew Hill, Benny Wilson. And it was run by a saxophone player, Alan Glover. And I'd play there from about 11 o'clock to about two, three o'clock. Then at, I go over to Studio We, run by James Du Bois, Juma Sultan. We would play there and there I met, you know, Daniel Carter, Carl Berger, all, I don't want to just keep naming names, but a lot of musicians were there and they had the whole building and it was six stories of music uh, from noon until three in the morning. But I would leave there about six o'clock and make my way over to, to Sam Rivers' place, 24 Barnes Street, and just hang out over there. If I wasn't playing, I met Charles Tyler, Rafael Malik, Scott Sam, Jerome Cooper, a whole bunch of musicians over there. And Sam, when he wasn't open for for concerts, you just stay there and hang and go go downstairs and play. And then after Sam's, I'd go over to the Waverly Theater, underneath the Waverly Theater, which is on 6th Avenue. And we had a, a basement down there where I'd meet up with Dewey Johnson, the trumpet player, and Earl Freeman Jr., the bassist. And we'd play there until Daniel Carter was there also. We'd play until the wee hours of the morning. And then after that, you'd sit out at the coffee shop and talk about how music is going to save the world. And eventually I'd make my way up, back up to the Bronx and flip around and, and then come back down. And it was also the days where uh, we had no money, so many times I'd walk from the Bronx down to Lower East Side with my bass on my back. Uh, I couldn't do that now, but, but it was really a great school. It was a great school, and uh, you know, we'd go to Rashid Ali, 77 Green Street, and it was really a, a lot of energy in the air. And I think we played at a place called The Kitchen. I think it was on Mercer Street. I'm not mistaken. I know we played and you could, it was a glass window and you could look out the glass window. That was sort of my first migration into the world, a different world that was maybe, that was less funky and had, maybe they had funding. <laughs> so they were a little less funky. But in 1977, the bicentennial, all the lofts got money. You know, Enverone, John Fisher, the Brubeck brothers, and from 77 to 80, the lofts began to close. And by the time Ronald Reagan had become president, the lofts were gone, the rents had gone up, musicians were moving out of the Lower East Side. And the, you know, the dynamic changed. And uh, you know, whereas before 1975, when I go to the store to get a loaf of bread, 
I go out and I'm on my way to get a bread and here comes Jackie McLean and Gracian Moncour or Don Cherry, Frank Lowe. And then you start talking and you have these summit meetings on the corner and you just be out for hours. And everything was cool. You know, you, you could be gone for like five or six hours. Okay, as long as you brought the bread back. And then you, you notice by the 80s, there were no more summit meetings. You know, there was on 7th Street, you had, uh, you know, uh, John Zorn's building. Eventually, Charles Gale lived there, I think Elliot Sharp. Uh, Butch Morris lived across the street, down the block. Dennis Charles lived up the block on 7th Street. But then, you know, things began to kind of, you know, slowly, as the neighborhood changed, things began to sort of fade a little bit. Somehow, we would see these signs for, for roulette. Uh, they were on West Broadway. You know, New York was forming into, see, New York is like a melting pot that never really melted. In fact, America is a melting pot that never melted. 
And so you had the wonderful thing about New York is you could ride the subway and you have people from Poland, from Greece, from Africa, from the Netherlands, from Mexico, all on the same subway car. And then they get off and they go to their own neighborhoods and everything is separate. Uh, you, you notice that, that people never, it was, there was no meeting, there was no community outside of business. I mean, I've always said that, that people, you know, talk about Chinese music or Chinese people, and they don't know anything about Chinese people or Vietnamese people, because they, they, they never, we're never taught in school about Chinese poetry, Chinese music, Chinese culture, Vietnamese culture. So there's really no cultural exchange. And I think part of that is that we don't want cultural exchange because you don't want an educated class of people who actually would say, well, no, I'm not going to Vietnam to, to, to drop bombs on, 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 on my brothers and sisters or people I know. So it, was, it just became separate and, every, and you saw more people at the airport or more people in Europe than you would see in New York. People that lived on your own block. You, you know, Blood Omer used to live right across the street from me. And you, you see more of him in, in Europe than you see on the block. So that's kind of how it was. Every now and then, a window opens where light can come through. And most of the time, that window is shut and there's no light coming through. But right now, because of this pandemic, that window has opened because we're being forced to be inside ourselves. There's also light inside of everybody. So, so we're being forced to look inside ourselves to endure and hang in there in another way to still be creative to not get depressed uh to deal with you know america's leadership to deal with something that maybe we didn't want to deal with before um, you have all these the uh, the protests from black lives matter you have the you have things 
about this sort of veil of racism that's kind of always been in America, but people haven't, haven't had to deal with it because they just sort of did what they did and it never came across their, uh, their road and their sphere. But now the window is open. So all of these things are kind of coming up. And so I think it's a good moment in time for us to think about changing, think about switching direction, thinking about uh, embracing the arts, embracing music and dance and poetry, because these are the things that will get us through. You can pass a bill through Congress, that's not gonna get you through. But if you hear some great music, that'll change your life. And, and that's really where it's at. It doesn't make any difference whether it's, you say, well, that's new music, or that's old music, or that's world music, or that's squirrel music. When you hear it, it said, I don't care what it was, but whatever it is, I want to hear it again every day. It's doing something to me, and it's helping to keep me alive. If those of us who are lucky enough to survive and, and um, and continue to play and communicate. I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of a blessing. I had a dream about this. If you took a master musician from every country 
and put them in a room and not said a word, not not told them, you know, you come in here, you come in there, and saying, you know, like, I'm a hope of feather, when it hits the ground, we all play. That, that it would work. Something running through my head. When we did this concert, we had we had uh, dancers and singers, Cherokee Indian singers from, from South and North Carolina. And we didn't say a word. We just began to play all these musicians and they came in and out, singing and dancing at ease. And it was like it was choreographed, what they were doing, what we were doing. And it just shows you, you know, that the same way if you take kids from all over the world, you take a kid from Russia, you take a kid from India, a kid from China, and you put them in a room with some toys, they're gonna have a great, they're gonna have a ball. <laughs> and that's how it is because there's certain things that, that, that we feel without saying a word. So that was the idea that there's a universal tonality that kind of runs through uh, music when we play. On, on that concert, we had a lot of different sections of instruments. We had, I think Jerome Cooper was playing the balaphone and Double Reed the Chiramia. Roger Blank was playing the balaphone. Uh, Gerald Cleaver, percussion. Uh, Jenny Kim playing Kamungo and Mia Masaoko playing Koto. So they played together. I, I had my Dusangoni from Mali and we had strings, Jason Wong and Billy Bang. We had what we call spirit catchers, people who didn't follow a score, who, who played what they felt. And that was mainly Daniel Carter and Jerome Cooper. And that's how it was. So, and it all came together nicely. We had texts, we had uh, Lena Conquest singing. There was no rehearsal for that. But every, every other than that, Dave Morello on piano, everybody just came together. And it just showed me that People can come together and, and play, and they can work on a high level.
All during the p pandemic, I've been studying the Holocaust. And uh, I wrote this piece now, it's about you know, four or five parts called Silhouettes in the Dust. And what is most challenging is that, you know, World War II, Holocaust, like, you know, what can you do to, you can't imitate bombs falling, you can't, you know, I guess you could, but how do you approach this poetically that will inspire people so it won't ever happen again? And that's kind of been the challenge for putting, the, you know, this piece together. So I figure if, if, you, if you do something that's very, very beautiful, then that will stop war from happening. soul, and music of bassist and composer William Parker. These programs are made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum. This is David Weinstein at the desk. Thanks all. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.